All right. Honored to be with you this morning. Uh, once again, my name is Andy Wozniki. I'm the pastor here of Leadership and Development. I've been here for about two and a half months now. Uh, this is the second time I've, I've gotten to preach, so I'm excited to be with you as we dive into the uh, second commandment. There's a bullet, there's an outline on the back of your bulletin. Uh, I mean, you can look at it and tell right away it's going to be a good sermon. I mean, the, the outline is spectacular. Um, hey, so the NBA started this week, uh, kicked off a new season. Uh, I don't know if you remember how uh, last season ended in the NBA, but in game one of the NBA finals, it was the Cleveland Cavs versus Golden State. Golden State heavily favored, but at the end of game one, they were tied with 4.7 seconds to play, 107 to 107, and uh, the Cavs were at the free throw line to seal the deal, but uh, they missed the free throw. But J.R. Smith for the Cavs was able to out-rebound Kevin Durant, grab the ball, and now he is three feet point-blank range to put up the game-winning shot. But instead, he dribbles away from the basket. His teammates are shouting at him, shoot the ball, put up a shot. But he dribbles out past the three-point line, and he holds on to the ball and lets time expire. And... Um, if you remember, uh, TV cameras caught LeBron James running up to him saying, what are you doing? Why didn't you shoot? And he said, he said, I thought we were ahead. I, I, I thought we were in the lead. I didn't know the score. Now, what's the sad reality about that moment? You know, it, it's not that he... Didn't he? He had something in his mind about what he believed, and he was sincere about his assumptions in that moment. And it led to the actions that he took. By the way, the the uh, the Warriors stepped on the gas in overtime. <laughs> they dominated. They uh, their hearts had been ripped out. The Cavs, and and then they got swept in four games. And so there were these consequences, right, to uh, these presuppositions that J.R. Smith had when he grabbed a hold of that rebound. He thought the scoreboard said one thing, but in reality, it said something different. Presuppositions matter. And as we get into this series on the Ten Commandments, I just want to remind us that one of the issues that we face when it comes to the law of God is that many times we start with the wrong presuppositions. Presupposition is just something that is tacitly assumed or accepted. And what we're learning in this series is that it is absolutely critical as we approach the law of God to start with the right presuppositions. And in fact, if we go throughout life with the wrong presuppositions about God, his law, how he relates to his people, we don't just lose a basketball game. You know, we don't just lose an NBA game. Uh, our whole lives are affected. It can be disastrous. So before we dive into the second commandment, that's where we're at today, I just want to cover a couple presuppositions. What we've already established, we want to talk about it real quick one more time uh, because these are absolutely paramount if we're going to make progress in this series. And so number one, I want to say that first of all, here's what we typically presuppose as we talk about the Ten Commandments. God's law is boring. It's irrelevant. Uh, it doesn't have any bearing on my life today. It doesn't make sense to me. 
and God must be just incredibly restrictive. That's the point here. Um, when I break it, God is angry at me. Um, and so, you know, honestly, he's disappointed. When I keep it, he's happy. And well, since I don't really do a great job of keeping it, I'd rather just distance myself from it, set it aside, and not think about it a whole lot. I'd rather just focus on his love. You know, that's a whole lot easier. Or perhaps we presuppose that because it's Old Testament, it has no bearing on us anymore. And we think, you know, well, Jesus sort of just summarized it nice and tight and clean. And he said, here's the whole law. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. These are the two commands. I don't really want to go a whole lot deeper than that. I think that to the degree that we do that, that we will remain distant from God. That we will miss out on life and intimacy with God. That to the degree that we don't go deeper into what these laws are all about, we won't live boldly for God. We won't pray big things for God and, and for, from God. We won't go deep in his word. And honestly, we won't experience the stunning reality that David sang about in Psalm 119. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on your commandments day and night. They are sweet to me. I love them. How do we get there? How do we get there so that our heart sings like that? So listen, it's critical that Andrew said one of the goals of this series is to start with the right presuppositions. We don't want to just understand the laws themselves. We want to understand God's heart behind the laws, why he's giving them to us, God's character. So here's two. I just told you what we do the wrong way, but here's the two that we need to assume in the right direction. Here's where we assume the wrong thing about the scoreboard. It's this, that God is in authority, and there is actually authority in this world that is good for us. Now, I know that seems obvious, but for many of us, it's not. Because when you hear the word authority, it's a bad word. It's a negative. It's somebody wanting to, you know, exert control and power over me. Maybe you've come from a place where authority has been abused or it's been abusive, and so the result for you is cynicism and skepticism, and I don't like authority. That's a bad thing. But what we have to understand presuppositionally is that there's a type of healthy and loving authority, and laws that flow from that kind of authority that are good for us. I want you to think about what Panama City was like last week after the hurricane. No cell towers, they're all down. You can't communicate with anybody. Uh, there's no power. There's no running water. Uh, most public service uh, officials are out, running around. They're tied up. And so what did you see on people's homes, just the normal home? You saw signs, homemade cardboard signs, armed and unafraid, right? Because why? Uh, there's looters in the street. There's chaos. The rules aren't being held to at that point in time. So, so there's no authority. There's no structure how does it feel to live in a house like that, in a neighborhood like that? We say, gosh, I long for good authority. I long for structure. I long for laws that protect me and help me to flourish. So that's the first one. And then secondly, I want you to remember that these laws are given to us in the context of covenantal love. We got to remember this. Rather than laws that are trying to stifle our joy, these laws are meant to enhance love and joy between God and who? Between God and his people, his bridegroom, 
That's uh, his bride. He's the bridegroom. We're the bride. And when he goes up on the mountain, what's happening when Moses goes up on the mountain to meet with God and to get the Ten Commandments, we are about to have a marriage ceremony. And so God is saying, here are the love stipulations that you would have just as a part of any normal relationship would obviously have some non-negotiables in place. I love the, uh, the story that Andrew shared, if you remember it, about he and Meredith when they got engaged. And Andrew said, well, Meredith knew that I was quite the catch. Now, when he said that, I go, oh, okay, this is a fictional story, all right? <laughs> just kidding. But it was. It was a fictional story. And, and he said, when we got engaged, uh, I said, Meredith, I just want to make sure that we're on the same page here. I sense there's some confusion about uh, the way we're getting into this. And so I just want to make sure that, one, you know uh, that once we get married, it, it's not going to be a lot. It's not going to be all the time. But, but I do intend to date other people after we're married. And I just don't want you to have a problem with that. Uh, I don't want you to worry that you think that doesn't mean that I don't love you or anything like that, but, but I do tend to see uh, other people. Again, it's not going to be a lot. And, and second, second thing I just want to make sure we're clear about is I did date a lot in the past, and they were pretty cool relationships. And while I'm not going to date them again necessarily, I have a, some great pictures and, and some memorabilia that reminds me of all the joyous times we had. And, and I'm not going to flaunt it or put it in your face, but I'm going to put them up in my office, you know, these pictures of these other girls that I dated, and uh, just a little paraphernalia around the house, just in the places where I am. And thirdly, I know these wedding ring things, it's a good idea. I think I'm on board with that. Let's get them. But, but here's the deal. Like, I'm kind of a private person and so when I go on business trips or I'm hanging out with my friends, I'm probably going to take my ring off because I just, I'm not crazy about people knowing that we're married necessarily, you know. Um, I tend to just kind of like, that's a, that's a deep personal thing. Now listen, okay, listen. If, if, if he actually did that, we would have to conclude he does not love Meredith, and there's no way in the world that she would marry him under those presuppositions, right? You would have to conclude he's out to lunch. And every single one of you women in the room would slap him in the face if that were a true story. But, but let me tell you this. We look at God's law and we think, oh, it's just about these restrictions. But really, this is just obvious. These are just obvious Love stipulations, non-negotiables that God would say, listen, it's not that these things can create love, but you would certainly have them in place, these boundaries that would keep and guard and foster and maintain a true love relationship. And so when we get married to people, we'd say, of course I'd take the pictures down. I mean, I haven't had the pictures in years, and of course I'm going to wear my ring. Of course I'm not going to date other people. This is obvious, in order to protect and guard the marriage. I love you. I want to be in relationship with you. Listen, until we understand that the law of God flows out of the character of God towards a people that he loves and calls to be in covenant relationship with him, to marry us, for us to be the bride of Christ, we will continue to think of these laws as, oh, I just didn't keep them today. Or did I kind of check the box? Or... Um, 
you know, I, I don't know. He must not mean that. Surely he can't mean that, and we lower what the law is really all about. God doesn't want us to lower the law. He doesn't want us to reduce. And so that's what the second commandment is all about today. I want to look at Deuteronomy 5. I want to look at Colossians 1. But more than anything, I want you to remember the scoreboard. Because as we dive in, I want you to remember that the scoreboard says this about you as his covenant children. You are the bride of Christ. You are a son of the king. You are a daughter of the king. You are freely loved, freely accepted, fully righteous in Christ. That's what the scoreboard says. As we approach the perfect law that gives freedom, we have to remember what the scoreboard says. So Deuteronomy 5, 6 through 10. And then I want to read uh, a little excerpt from Colossians 1. Uh, I think we have, yeah, good. All right. Deuteronomy 5, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image, a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth below or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation to those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to, those, to, to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. All right, now I want to flip to the New Testament and look at Colossians 1. This, uh, this, this commandment is about the image of God. And it says that in Colossians 1, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And as we say every week, uh, as the grass, wither, the grass withers, the flower fades, but not your word, O Lord, your word stands forever. That's why we read God's word. Now, I want to start off talking about math class, basic math class. When you're, uh, you know, a kid in elementary school, the most basic thing you learn is addition and subtraction. And the first two commandments, this is simply what we have going on here. Last week, Ben talked about no idols. And what that essentially is, is do not add to God. You have God, don't add to him. And this week, we have no images, do not have or create any images that would not accurately represent God. Because why? Because they will subtract from God. Last week was about adding to God. Commandment two is about subtracting from God. In one sense, last week we could say that that, that, that sermon was about idolatry. Commandment one is about idolatry. Commandment number two is about heresy. Last week we found out who we are to worship this week we talk about how do we worship him, and we don't want to reduce. We don't want to subtract. 
So what's being forbidden in this commandment is that God is invisible and we're not to try to make him visible. Don't do it. God has already done it himself in the person of Jesus. So let's look at the text and see uh, what his heart for us is in this. Why, Why is this important? Because if you think about it, we hang pictures of our loved ones all over the place. I mean, we put pictures up in the office and we put them on the refrigerator. Why would God have a love stipulation about no images? And so here's the first idea in the outline. Idols and images cannot accurately represent God. Why not? Because in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. For by him, all things were created, everything visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, authorities, rulers. In him, all things hold together. In him is the fullness of God. So here's this this sweeping grandeur of God, the majesty of God given to us. And what we're being told is, If you try to make a fish of the sea or a bird of the air or any carved image and set it up and say, this is to represent God, we would be reducing him, subtracting from him in the most substantial of ways. In the material world, we say a picture is worth a thousand words, but not so in the spiritual. In the spiritual, words have more power. It would be like me cutting off the, the, uh, my little toenail, okay, on my, on my toe, clipping off my toenail with all the little dust in there and the dirt. And we take a picture of it and we blow that picture up. And my wife puts it on the refrigerator. It's just my toenail. And people come in and they go, what's that? She says, oh, that's my husband. That's Andy Wozniki. Isn't he beautiful? I'm not really seeing it, you know? What? I don't get it. Because we've reduced And that's what pictures and images do. They reduce. And so in Deuteronomy 4, we get a little bit more exposition on the idea here. The Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of words but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you in his covenant, and he wrote them on tablets of stone. He said, therefore, watch yourself very carefully, lest you act corruptly and make a graven image for yourself. It's a fullness problem. God's fullness came to dwell and to be imaged in the person of Jesus. And when we try to manufacture it through images, he says, watch out. When you don't represent God accurately, you, the people of God, get cheated. You get corrupted. You get distorted. Now, we all remember the story of the golden calf. So there's two ways that this happens. Number one is through physical images, which is on the outline. And remember the uh, people of Israel, right after the commandments come down, they make a huge mistake. Moses goes back up and they go, oh, he's taking too long to come down. And in the passage in Exodus 32, they they start to get afraid. They get nervous. Fear creeps in. Aaron says, I got a great idea. We're going to take care of this. Take off your bling throw it in the fire, I'm going to carve out something really nice, and he makes a golden calf. It's really more a bull. Think bull. Now, they create this, and it says they worshiped him. What in the world would that bull represent about God to the people that they needed at that point in time? His strength? Maybe Maybe it gives you a little snapshot of his strength, but to what percentage does that bull accurately reflect and represent the power and the strength of the Almighty God. 
in his fullness. You'd say not even to the smallest percent could it possibly do that. So imagine that, that God were to come down and have a conversation with Aaron and say, what is this? What, what is this supposed to show about me? Maybe it shows my strength, but what about my compassion? Have you ever seen a compassionate bull? What about my wisdom, my mercy, my tenderness, my love, my personality, the fullness of God? I am dynamic, and you've reduced me. You've subtracted. So what's the story about images? Does that mean that, uh, that God says no pictures, no crosses, you know, I don't really think that that's what's, I don't really think that's, that, that's uh, what's on the radar here. I, I do think that you can have some pictures, and I think you can have the cross, and I think you can have some things, but the, the point is that we're not supposed to worship them, to move towards whatever images we have, or you know, you got a cross around your neck, or a cross up here. Certainly, we're not supposed to believe that we need them for worship or to approach them to see something about God that we can't see otherwise from his word. And certainly we don't need our worship to be enhanced from them. God says, don't do it. It's dangerous. Let my word speak for itself. I also think pictures have some limitations. There was a guy named Tom Skinner, a great Christian evangelist. He was raised in the streets of Harlem. And when he went to his Sunday school class every now and then, he looked at that little picture of Jesus on the storybook. Uh, Jesus, meek and mild in the robes and so tender and soft, you know, sweet. And he thought to himself, I can't be a Christian because they're telling me that's God and God wouldn't last an hour in my neighborhood. There's no way. I'm out. And it took a long time for someone to remember and help him understand the true image of God. But I don't really think that's the main point. The physical images, yeah, but the deeper issue is the mental images, which is number two. And so it's our mental images that cause the most problems. You see, what God's saying here is don't imagine me, a certain word. The word imagination and image, it's all the same word. And what he's saying here is, I don't want you to imagine me however you want me to be, according to your preferences. Now remember, these are love stipulations. So they're rooted in relationships. When he's telling us these things, he's saying it's dangerous for us to relate to someone else based on who we want them to be rather than who they actually are revealing themselves to be and telling us that they are. And you think about how damaging that is in any relationships that you had. I can remember the first time that I came on staff with Campus Outreach and uh, the first director that I had, or a campus director, uh, you know, he was in love with these uh, personality profiles, and I think they're okay, they're helpful, but he had, uh, he, he didn't really have any uh, thought of, let me build a relationship with this guy and get to know Andy. He had me take a relationship, or a pro- personality profile, so he could see my gifts and my strengths, and then he pegged me. He said, you know what, these are probably the type of people on the campus that you'd best spend time with, and here are the students in our uh, ministry that you should probably hang out with, and these are the kinds of things I'm going to have you do uh, as a part of this team. What was he doing? He's boxing me in. He's reducing me. He's limiting me. He's editing me. Don't you hate it when people do that to you? Of course you do, and God does too. Because again, this is Relationships 101. When we start to do that to people, what are we eliminating? We're eliminating the opportunity to actually have a relationship with someone, to get to know them. 
for them to let down their guard to open themselves to us, for us to spend time with them, to build trust and rapport. And so what we miss out on when people do that to us is relationship. When I impose my needs and my wishes and I decide the other person should be like this, here's what I choose to see. You keep telling me you're an artist. I prefer to see a professional football player. What? No, I'm an artist. No. You know, that, it's destructive to our marriages, destructive to our kids, destructive to our coworkers. Nobody wants to be treated that way. Nobody wants to be boxed in. Why would we ever do that? Why would we ever let our imagination about reality conflict? Here's reality, but I, I don't want to see it that way. My wife knows this about me, but uh, I hate it when we have car problems. In fact, when, uh, sometimes when we, she'll hear a little noise, she'll go, you hear that? I'll say, I don't hear anything. <laughs> she'll say, no, really. Right there, right there. All cars with 100,000 miles make that noise. And she'll say, I, I remember we got our first van. It was a hand-me-down. And uh, it, real quick, the AC went out on it. We're driving down the road, and she's like, all I feel is regular air. And I'm like, it's coming, babe. Just give it a minute. It's got to warm up. And uh, 15 minutes later, it's broken. We got to take it in. We got to get it recharged. I feel it coming. It's right there. Hey, you have your window down. Like, it's cooler outside than inside. But here's the deal. It was easier for me to imagine cars fine than it is to think about the inconvenience. I didn't want to deal with the expense I didn't want to have to figure out, well, how am I going to rearrange my schedule and take it in? I can't afford this. So in my mind, it's like I block it out. I would prefer to imagine, we have running AC. Can't you feel it? Over the reality. Now, here's the thing. It, we do that with a car. It's, it's no big deal. But we need something to regulate where our imagination takes us. Because our imagination, just like all our other faculties, is broken. Now, images, and we, and we can't manipulate our environment through our imagination. We certainly can't manipulate God. And so that's number two. Idols and images evoke the jealousy of God. When we try to do this with God, it invokes his jealousy. You shall not bow down to them, verse 9, or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, jealousy is not something that's good or bad. It can be either. If I'm jealous of you because... Uh, you know, you're more successful at work than I am. That's a bad thing. But if I'm jealous that somebody's flirting with my wife, that's a byproduct of love, and that's a good thing. And this is the kind of jealousy that God has for us here. He's jealous for us because he wants the best for us. He doesn't want us to flirt with some image in our mind that we have about who God is so that we can feel more in control of our lives and our environment and our preferences now, there's two common ways that we do it, two common ways that we reduce and distort God. The first one on your, your outline says Godfather. Now, when I'm talking about Godfather, I'm talking about like the movie The Godfather, you know, the mafia. So like, hey, I'll make him an offer he can't refuse, like that kind of Godfather. When we reduce God and think about him like that, we tend to think of him how? Oh, gosh, I better not cross him or he'll take me out. Uh, if I... If I mess up, he's going to be mad at me and angry. And so we are perpetually, when we think about God and reduce him that way, we are tempted and prone to stay away from him because we're afraid 
and we never get heart to heart with him. He's the Godfather. He's perpetually disappointed. Is that the message of Christianity, that, that what God's really after is good little boys and good little girls, and that's what will make him love you? If you swing the pendulum the, to the other side, you have not just the Godfather deity, you have the grandfather deity. What are grandparents like? They are so soft. Grandparents are soft. And if you're a grandparent, you know it. Uh, you know, your grandkids come over and you think discipline, that's the parent's job. My job is to spoil these punk kids uh, for as long as they're in the house. And so when my kids go to, to grandma and grandpa's house, they say, grandma and grandpa, look at my kids are smiling right now. They say, grandma, can I? And the answer's already yes, yes, yes. Whatever you're gonna say, the answer's yes. That's grandfather deity. And some of us think of him that way. Some of us think of God that way and we reduce him and we think, you know, I can just ask him for anything and he will meet all my wishes. And you know, oh gosh, he, he, he's not worried about any sin in my life or anything like that. He just glosses over all that stuff. When we reduce God to either Godfather deity or grandfather deity, it, it distorts it injects a distortion into our relationship with God and everything else falls apart. Now listen, if air conditioners, <laughs> our imagination about air conditioners needs to be regulated by the truth then, uh, and our, our spouses and our kids, then our imagination, the way we image God, certainly has to be regulated as well. And what is it regulated by? the truth of his word, the person of Jesus. So point number three says, the problem of relating to God through a distorted picture, through idols and images, is that will negatively impact future generations. Future generations. And that's what the passage says. The passage says, uh, do we have the uh, the text for uh, for the that point up on the screen from Deuteronomy 5. I'll read it again. I'll just go back here. Yeah, there it is. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of... Keep going for just a minute. Yeah, keep going. Sorry. One more. There you are. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. I don't think that what that is saying is that God is intending to punish you when you break the second commandment. But I do think that what that is teaching is that there are consequences to the ways that we distort and bring distortions into our families. Just like divorce has consequences, even good divorces, where there's divorce in my family, and I have it in my family, there's going to be an impact for the children. And when we distort the picture and the image of God, it will introduce something into our, our children's lives. Listen, they're going to fear what we fear. They're going to delight in what we delight in. And they may not pick up on it in the same exact forms. But if what my kids hear is it's camping and it's lake day and it's sports, what really gets my, my dad, my mom and dad jacked up is sports, how the business is going, you know, uh, uh, what are we doing uh, with our free time, leisure activities? Then they begin to pick up on it as well. And what they will end up delighting in are the same things. I love what Andrew said. Um, 
earlier in the series that every negative barrier that God sets up with these commandments, he sets up a positive aspect to the commandment as well. And so if we are to pursue God through commandment number two, what would that look like? Would that just look like restrictions? It would also look like, no, I need to set myself under the word of God. I need to see the person of Jesus more and more clearly with my life. I need to bathe in and soak in the word of God so that I can see Christ, so that I can see God as he truly is. How would we do that? What would that look like? All right, so I want us to have three things here. Now, Colossians 1 is the passage we talked about earlier. It said that he is the image of the invisible God. He is the solution to our need. Now, think about this. It's amazing because uh, if what we've already said is if it's, le- if it's left up to us to create the image, we're going to blow it. And we're going to create an image in our mind of God that suits our preferences because our faculties are broken and we want to control things. And so we can't have it left up to us to create the image. On the other hand, if we have no images, nothing to think about or see with God, then he remains an abstraction and we can't relate to him. And so the way that this would probably best play out is actually the way that it plays out in Christianity. God gives us the image. He gives us the icon. The Greek word in, in Colossians 1.15 is that Jesus is the icon. He is the exact representation of the invisible God. And so our goal is to say, how can I get Jesus into these distortions? Three ways. I want you to start by thinking about where is there a spot in my life where there's worry, fear, anger, whatever the, the places in your life that are wreaking havoc, you start there. And number two, underneath that, there is a distortion about the way that you view God, a distorted image of God. And number three, into that distortion, we take Jesus. We take Jesus there. That's the big application for the day. So what does that look like? Well, think about a place where I'm worried, where I'm really anxious and I look at the circumstances and the signs, and I think, this is not going to go well. Based on what I see and perceive, I feel angry or worried. Now, God has revealed himself in his word, and he says some things to me. He says, I'm sovereign, I'm wise, I'm good, I'm in control. But we're not comfortable necessarily, like, letting go and saying, this is a huge unknown for me. Uh, I'm really tempted to want to continue to maintain control. So I prefer to image you this way. What do we do with that? Well, I would suggest you might try going to Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane and thinking about Jesus and meditating on Jesus there, where he is in a moment where the most the person who least deserves to have what's about to happen to him circumstantially on the cross, he's there and he is uh, tired, he is scared, and, and he is unsure how things are going to turn out. And he says, God, would you please let this cup, cup pass from me? And yet, in your wisdom and in your sovereignty, I say, not, your will, not my will, but yours be done. And we see Jesus in this place of, of uncertainty, and we think about our places of uncertainty, and we bring Jesus into that moment, and we say, Lord Jesus, would you give me the kind of power 
that I need? Can I appropriate that right now in this place of worry? It doesn't make sense to me, but I will trust Jesus. I bring Jesus into this. This is so personal. This is the goodness of God. This is the the gloriously full picture of Jesus embodied and walking around and trusting in a place that we could relate to with worry. So so what we said is uh, we need the positive commandment. We need to bathe in Scripture. We need to see him animating, convicting, and healing, Jesus bringing truth and grace. Um, I love the uh, cross chart. I don't know if uh, you're familiar with the cross chart. I had, to, uh, I had it for a, a slide, but the slide didn't work this morning. And uh, I want us to talk about this in our community groups this week. And so on your way out the door, if you're in a community group, I want you to grab one of these. And there's a little diagram here that says the cross chart. And what it shows you is that as you progress as a Christian, there's going to be a way in which this, this line right here begins to see more and more of God's holiness. You begin to see more and more, wow, his law is a big deal and he takes it seriously. And at the same time, as you're moving throughout the Christian life, you're also going to begin to see more and more of your sinfulness. That's the bottom axis there. And, and so what we're tempted to do is this cross right in the middle. And there's a wedge right here and right here. And you'll see it when you get the document. But what we're tempted to do is to distort the picture by lowering the standard. We say, oh God, you must not really mean that. I look at your law, it's huge, it's beautiful, but you must not really mean that. It's a distortion, it's dangerous. Or we look at our sinfulness and we go, but look at everybody else here. I mean, they're, they're worse than me. And so we, we adjust the record. Anytime we insert wedges into either God's holiness or our sinfulness, we do a great disservice to ourselves. We miss out on the image of the invisible God. We miss out on Christ, bringing Christ into our lives to give us freedom and hope and joy. I'm going to close with a quote from uh, A.W. Tozer. And uh, here's what he says, because what's at stake in this is uh, God himself. And the greatest gift that God could give his people is his fullness, as he truly is. And so here's what A.W. Tozer says. The man who has God for his treasure has all things in one. Many ordinary treasures may be denied him, or if he's allowed to have them, the enjoyment of them will be so tempered that they will never be necessary to his happiness. Or if he must see them go one after one, he will scarcely feel a sense of loss. For having the source of all things, he has in one all satisfaction, all pleasure, all delight. Whatever he may lose, he has actually lost nothing. For he now has it all in one, and he has it purely, legitimately, and forever. Do you know why God would say no images? Don't imagine me however you want me to be. Because the best thing that he could give you is himself in his fullness, in this all-satisfying way. Why would we ever reduce him to suit our preferences and to avoid, "Ah, I don't want to deal with the holiness. I don't want to deal with my sin. He says, no, bring Christ into that. Experience the fullness of joy in knowing the full and awesome, majestic, glorious God. That's our hope as we move throughout this series that we would have the heart of God, the character of God 
embedded in our souls. Let's pray, and then we'll uh, wrap up our worship service. Well, Father, um, I would just say that I'm totally guilty, and I'm guilty of this because uh, life is just easier when I can choose to do with it what I want, and I can ignore certain things about my sin and my pride and my brokenness. Uh, I set your law aside, but God, it's not full. And it's not deeply satisfying. And I want more of you. I want more of you in my life. And I'm thankful that you freely offer yourself to us in the person of Jesus. And you image yourself to us perfectly. And so, Father, I pray that the contours of our imagination would be regulated and formed and shaped by your perfect word, by the perfect law that actually brings us great freedom. Oh, Lord God, may that be the heart for us in this series, and would we make great progress as a church, building our lives around you. We want you, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.